Hello, everybody, and welcome back to another episode of the Kohalet Podcast. My name is Leonard, and I will be your host for this week's episode. We are continuing our way through Dr. Wayne Grudem's Systematic Theology, and this week we will focus on Chapter 35, which covers the topic of conversion and involves faith and repentance. In this study, we're going to seek to answer three very important questions, the first one being, what is saving faith? Then, what is true repentance? And finally, is repentance from sin necessary for salvation? If you've been listening to our episodes in order, you would know that in the last two episodes or throughout the last two chapters of the book, we explained how God himself issues the gospel call to us and then by the work of the Holy Spirit regenerates us, imparting new spiritual life within. We make a shift in this episode to talk about and examine our response to the gospel call, which we call conversion. And to give conversion a specific definition, we're going to define it as follows. Conversion is our willing response to the gospel call in which we sincerely repent of sins and place our trust in Christ for salvation. So the word conversion actually means turning. And in this sense, what it does is it like represents a spiritual turn, a turning from sin to Christ And that turning from sin is called repentance. And then the turning to Christ is what we call faith. Since they must occur together when true conversion takes place, it doesn't matter in what order we talk about them for the sake of this podcast episode. So we're going to go ahead and look at faith first and then at repentance. We start by saying that true saving faith includes three things. It includes first knowledge, then approval, and then finally personal trust. But it is important to note that knowledge alone is not enough. Now, of course, it is necessary that we have some knowledge of who Christ is and what he has done, because we certainly acknowledge, as Romans chapter 10, verse 14 says, how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? But knowledge about the facts of Jesus's life, death, and resurrection uh, for us is not enough, because we know that people can know facts but rebel against them or dislike them. In Romans chapter 1, verse 32, Paul tells us, Though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. Similarly, someone can know the historical facts that Jesus died and that he rose from the dead and that the Bible says this was to pay for our sins, but that knowledge alone is not saving faith. But we want to take this one step further and say that knowledge and even approval is not enough. Merely knowing the facts and approving of them or agreeing that they are true is still not enough. In John chapter 3, verse 2, Nicodemus knew that Jesus had come from God because he said, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. 
So in this situation, we see that Nicodemus had evaluated the facts of the situation, including Jesus's teachings and his miracles, and he had even made the correct conclusion from those facts, that Jesus was a teacher that had come from God. But this alone did not mean that Nicodemus had saving faith, for he still had to put his trust in Christ for salvation. So in addition to knowledge of the facts of the gospel and even approval of those facts, in order to be saved, I must decide to trust or depend on Jesus as a living person to save me. Because when I do this, I move from being an interested observer of the facts of salvation and the teachings of the Bible to being somebody who enters into a new relationship with Jesus Christ as a person who is alive and who even now hears us and sees us and is present with us. So with that, we can now actually define saving faith. We will define it as uh, trust in Jesus Christ as a living person for forgiveness of sins and for eternal life with God. This definition does a good job emphasizing that saving faith is not just a belief in facts, but a personal trust in Jesus to save me. Now, salvation does include or involves much more than simply the forgiveness of sins and eternal life. It also involves matters like a declaration of righteousness before God, adoption, sanctification, and glorification. And those are all things that we will get into in future episodes. But the main thing that concerns an unbeliever who comes to Christ is the fact that sin has separated him or her from the fellowship with God for which we were made and places him or her in danger of eternal judgment, right? The unbeliever comes to Christ seeking to have sin and guilt removed and to enter into a genuine relationship with God that will last forever. Another thing that this definition emphasizes is personal trust in Christ, not just believing in facts about Christ. Grudem prefers to use the words personal trust in this sense over the words faith and belief. And his reason for doing so is that we can believe something to be true with no personal commitment or dependence involved in it. So, for example, he says that we can believe that Canberra is the capital of Australia or that seven times six equals 42, but you and I have no personal commitment or dependence on anyone when we simply believe those facts. He goes on to say that the word faith is sometimes used today in our culture to refer to an almost irrational commitment to something in spite of being strong evidence to the contrary. And if that's confusing, let's give you an example. So imagine that your, your favorite football team continues to lose game after game, and someone could encourage you to have faith even though all of the facts point to the opposite direction because the team just stinks, right? So in these senses, the words belief and the word faith have a meaning that is actually contrary to the correct biblical sense of the words. 
Now, we don't want to give up on using the words belief and faith, of course, because they're used so frequently in the Bible. The point we're trying to make here is simply that when explaining the gospel to an unbeliever, the word trust is most likely to better convey the uh, biblical sense today of what we mean when we say uh, belief and faith. There are definitely some scripture passages that speak a little more specifically to this idea of emphasizing trust in Christ as a living person, and I want to take a look at just a couple of those. First, in John chapter 1, verse 12, John says, To all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. So much as we would receive a guest into our homes, John speaks of receiving Christ. Also, in the very familiar verse of John chapter 3, verse 16, it tells us that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. Notice he doesn't just simply say whoever believes him, right? But rather, whoever believes in him. This gives the sense of trust or confidence that goes into and rests in Jesus as a person. Leon Morris says, and quote, Faith for John is an activity which takes men right out of themselves and makes them one with Christ. So now, with this understanding of true New Testament faith, we know that when a person comes to trust in Christ, there must be some basic knowledge or understanding of the facts of the gospel. There must also be approval of or agreement with these facts. And there also needs to be an awareness that I need to put my trust in Christ for salvation and that he is the only way to God and the only means for providing my salvation. This approval of the facts of the gospel will also involve a desire to be saved through Christ. But all of this still does not add up to true saving faith, right? That only comes when I make a decision of my will to depend on or put my trust in Christ as my Savior. This personal decision to place my trust in Christ is something done with my heart, which is the central faculty of my entire being by which I make a commitment for myself as a whole person. And now as we get ready to finish up this last little section on faith, we want to mention that faith should increase as our knowledge increases. And although it's contrary to the current secular understanding of faith, but true New Testament faith is not something that is made stronger by ignorance or by believing against the evidence. Rather, saving faith is consistent with knowledge and true understanding of facts. In Romans chapter 10, verse 17, Paul says, Faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. So the more we know about him and about the character of God that is completely revealed in him, the more fully that we are able to put our trust in him. So faith is not weakened by knowledge, but it should increase with more true knowledge. 
So in the case of saving faith in Christ, our knowledge of him comes by believing a reliable testimony about him. And of course, that reliable testimony that we believe is the words of scripture, right? And since they are God's very words, we know that they are completely reliable and we gain true knowledge of Christ through them. Now, as we get ready to move on to the idea of repentance, I want to once again reiterate that faith and repentance must come together. It's important, so of course I want to mention it again before we just simply start focusing on another topic, and that being repentance. But with that being said, let's go ahead and start by defining the word repentance. We're going to go ahead and define it as follows. Repentance is a heartfelt sorrow for sin, a renouncing of it, and a sincere commitment to forsake it and walk in obedience to Christ. This definition tells us that repentance is something that can occur at a specific point in time and is not equivalent to a demonstration of a change in a person's pattern of life. Repentance is an intellectual understanding, of course, that sin is wrong, and an emotional approval of the teachings of Scripture regarding sin, which means a sorrow for sin and a hatred of it, and a personal decision to turn from it, which is a renouncing of sin and a decision of the will to forsake it and lead a life of obedience to Christ instead. It is interesting to note, however, that we should never say that someone actually has to live that changed life over a period of time before repentance can be genuine, or else repentance would be turned into some kind of like uh, obedience or a work that we could do to merit salvation for ourselves. We know, of course, that that's contrary to uh, the New Testament teachings. For example, we see in Romans chapter 3, verse 28, it says, one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. But I do want to be clear, though, uh, uh, genuine repentance will result in a changed life, but we should never attempt to require that, right? That they be uh, like a certain period of time in which a person actually lives a changed life before we give assurance of forgiveness, Remember that repentance is something that occurs in the heart and involves the whole person to turn from sin. Something very important to realize is that mere sorrow for your actions or even deep remorse over your actions does not constitute genuine repentance unless it's accompanied by a sincere decision to forsake the sin that is being committed against God. Remember uh, Paul in 2 Corinthians chapter 7 in verses 9 and 10, it says that he rejoiced over the Corinthians, not because you were grieved, but because you were grieved into repenting. For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. So a worldly grief may involve great sorrow for your actions and probably also a fear of punishment, but no genuine renouncing of sin or a commitment to forsake that sin 
in your life. We'll now talk for a minute about how repentance and faith occur together. Scripture puts repentance and faith together as different aspects of the one act of coming to Christ for salvation. When we turn to Christ for salvation from our sins, we are simultaneously turning away from the sins that we are asking Christ to save us from, right? If that weren't true, then our turning to Christ for salvation from sin could hardly be a genuine turning to him or trusting in him. Grudem says that repentance and faith are simply two different sides of the same coin. So it is clearly contrary to the New Testament evidence to speak about the possibility of having true saving faith without having any repentance for sin. We'd also would say that it's contrary to the New Testament to speak about the possibility of somebody accepting Christ as Savior, but not as Lord. In Matthew chapter 11, verses 28 and 29, when Jesus invites the sinners, he says, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. But then notice he immediately adds, take my yoke upon you and learn from me. So to come to him includes taking his yoke upon us, being uh, subject to his uh, direction and guidance and learning from him, and then certainly being obedient to him. It's also important to note that repentance involves more than just a changed mind. There are some authors out there that claim that the word repentance in the New Testament just means a change of mind, and it doesn't have any implication of sorrow for sin or an internal resolve to turn away from sin. And the idea of changing one's mind is certainly a definition for repentance, but every New Testament passage that uses the word repentance falls under more of a second, more in-depth meaning of that word, which is to feel remorse or to be converted. Because repentance always includes a conscious inward resolve to turn from sin. And the New Testament emphasis seems to be more specifically uh, interested in the total change, both in thought and behavior, with respect to how one should both think and act. In Acts chapter 20, verse 21, Paul summarizes his gospel ministry as one of testifying both to Jews and to Greeks of repentance towards God and of faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, there are some times where faith alone is named as the thing necessary for coming to Christ for salvation. Uh, you could take a look at John chapter 3, verse 16, or Acts chapter 16, verse 31, or Romans chapter 10, verse 9, and I'm sure there's many others, but what we don't often realize is that there are also many passages where only repentance is named. And this is because it's simply assumed that true repentance will also involve faith in Christ for the forgiveness of sins. The New Testament authors understood very well that genuine repentance and genuine faith had to go together. 
so much so that they often simply mentioned repentance alone with the understanding that faith would also be included. Because turning from sins in a genuine way is impossible apart from a genuine turning to God. Remember, just before Jesus ascended into heaven, he told his disciples in Luke chapter 24, verses 46 and 47, Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead, and that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations. So in that phrase, uh, forgiveness of sins, saving faith is implied, even though it's not explicitly named. When we realize that genuine saving faith must be accompanied by genuine repentance for sin, that really helps us to understand why some preaching of the gospel has had just such inadequate results today. We believe that commitment to Christ, if genuine, it must include a commitment to turn from sin. So if you're preaching the need for faith without repentance, you're just simply preaching half of the gospel. And we have to admit that, sadly, that's what we see in many, many churches today. Now, at this point in chapter 35, Dr. Grudem spends a significant portion talking about a movement called the Free Grace Movement. And the Free Grace Movement folks argue that the view that I've kind of laid out so far, that repentance and faith must go together, they would claim that that is a false gospel of lordship salvation. So what they would say is that saving faith only involves trusting Christ as your Savior, and that submitting to him as your Lord, whom you commit to obey, is an optional even though it's commanded and beneficial, but that's a later step that is actually unnecessary for salvation. I think throughout our discussion on faith and repentance in this episode that we've kind of already played our card that this is not something that we subscribe to, um, and therefore I don't want to take a whole lot of time to go into details about it, but I also want to be sure to not ignore the fact that it exists and just make people think that it's something that we are particularly trying to avoid here. So I want to make mention that if you have some particular questions about the free grace movement, I do encourage you to send an email to myself, that's leonard at maricopasprings.com, or to our our lead pastor, Grady at MaricopaSprings.com, and we'd definitely be happy to address some of those specific questions on our next roundtable episode. And now we get to kind of a sidebar question uh, that Grudem puts in this chapter, and it's, should people pray to receive Christ? So if you've been around churches for any length of time, you've probably heard uh, that like the common practice or those words of asking people to pray to receive Christ as their personal Savior and Lord. Now, Scripture does talk about receiving Christ. You could take a look at John chapter 1 verses 11 and 12 or Colossians chapter 2 
verse 6 to see some examples of that. I won't read those passages here, but that was John chapter 1, verses 11 and 12, or Colossians chapter 2, verses, verse 6, sorry. Um, but we can say that since personal faith in Christ must involve an actual decision of the will— that it's often very helpful to express that decision in spoken words, and that could very naturally take the form of a prayer to Christ in which we tell him of our sorrow for sin and our commitment to forsake it and our decision to actually put our trust in him. But it becomes important to note, though, that the spoken prayer in itself doesn't actually save us, right? But it's the attitude of the heart that it represents that constitutes true conversion. And the decision to speak that prayer often can be the point at which a person truly comes to faith in Christ. And for our final section in this chapter, we want to point out the idea that both faith and repentance continue throughout our lives. Both faith and repentance are not confined to the beginning of the Christian life. They are attitudes of the heart that are going to continue throughout our lives as Christians. In Matthew chapter 6, verse 12, Jesus tells the disciples to pray daily and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And of course, here he's using debts as a metaphor for sin. But if this prayer is genuine, it's certainly going to involve daily sorrow for sin and genuine repentance. Also, in 1 John chapter 1, verse 9, the Apostle John writes to Christian believers about regular repentance, and he says, If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And now to talk about faith, if we look at 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 13, Paul says, So now faith, hope, and love abide, these three, but the greatest of these is love. And here he certainly means that these three abide throughout the course of this life, but we think he probably also means that they abide for all eternity. So to kind of conclude here, we would say that although it is true that initial saving faith and initial repentance occur only once in our lives, and when they occur, they do constitute true conversion, nonetheless, the heart attitudes of repentance and faith only begin at conversion. The same attitudes should continue throughout the course of our Christian lives. Each day, we should have heartfelt repentance for sins that we've committed and faith in Christ to provide for our needs and to empower us to live the Christian life. 
All right. And with that, we come to the end of our study on chapter 35, talking about conversion, which of course includes faith and repentance. I do hope that this has been informative and encouraging for all of you guys out there listening. But once again, if you do have any questions or would like something discussed further, I encourage you to email myself, that's leonard at maricopasprings.com, or also our lead pastor, Grady, who can be reached at grady at maricopasprings.com, and we will do our best to include those ideas or those questions in our roundtable episode where we gather our entire elder team and just kind of talk and discuss some things that time may not have allowed us to really dive into during our podcast. So I do encourage you to come back next week as we start our discussion on justification, which is the right legal standing before God. And as always, thank you guys so much for listening. And we certainly look forward to having you join us again next week. But until then, God bless.